Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books and Sociology podcast channel on the New Books Network. Hi, I'm Deidre Tyler, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Julia Dim, author of Reconsidering Red Plus, Authority, Power, and Law in the Green Economy. How are you doing today, Julia? Good, thanks. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Thank you for joining us today. Can you give us the legal history of Red Plus? Sure. So I might start by sort of speaking a little bit about how I came to it and then sort of set out the history of Red Plus. So initially what spurred my interest in this was a sense of outrage. I was um, involved in a lot of forest protection activism in Australia where I'm based. And then sort of around the time of the Copenhagen Conference of the Parties in 2009, started realising like a lot of other forest activists that if we didn't do something about climate change, that would have such a drastic impact on all the global ecosystems everywhere. And so I started um, focusing much more on questions of global climate change and how that intersects with questions of forest protection. And it's there that I learned more about um, Red Plus, which stands for reducing emissions from deforestation and forest degradation. So it's an international scheme under the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change Regime um, to incentivize forest protection as a way of mitigating um, climate change. Um, And so in some ways, it should be a win-win solution. Obviously, deforestation is a massive problem, um, both in terms of greenhouse gas emissions, but also in terms of biodiversity loss um, and lots of other concerns. Um, But the more I learned about this, the more it appeared to me as a perverse false solution, particularly if we were going to treat emissions saved from Um, sequestration through avoided deforestation as offsets that could be used to um, legitimate continued pollution elsewhere, it seemed to be creating a lot of additional problems. And similarly, that um, there are a lot of concerns about the the human rights impacts of these sort of projects. There are 1.6 billion people globally who live in and around forests and depend on them to some degree for their livelihoods. And so having these sort of projects that would incentivize potentially, um, you know, forms of coercive conservation that might dispossess or exclude people from these forested spaces could have very severe impacts um, for um, these people, as well as um, there's a lot of questions around the environmental integrity of these sort of schemes. So I sort of became really passionate and then started to, as I did my PhD, go deeper into this question of um, red because I really want to understand the effects this scheme was having in the world and I want to situate it in a broader perspective, understand it in the context of the broader global political economy and the tensions and contradictions of this transition to a low-carbon economy that's supposedly underway, um, but also to understand it um, and situate it in the history of colonialism and neo-colonial north-south relations and understand how laws implicated in this. And so for me, the animating concern really was that climate change is a social justice crisis. 
And we know that those who have done the least to cause the problem of climate change are those who are going to be most vulnerable to the impacts of climate change. Um, and that these, you know, that the crisis is um, differentiated by questions of race, um, gender, etc. And that any of these inequalities need to be addressed in just response to the climate change. And so my animating concern really in this book and that drove this project was that these dominant legal responses to climate change, particularly this sort of marketized vision of a green economy that's been pushed and enabled and promoted through RED, um, is instead further intensifying and replicating these existing um, legal relationships of domination, exploitation, and marginalization rather than um, addressing them. So to give you more of a sense of the history of RED, it was sort of first proposed in 2005 by Papua New Guinea and Costa Rica. Um, and then it sort of became part of the international um, climate negotiations. It was taken up in um, the Bali Action Plan um, at the Conference of the Parties in 2007. And then it was endorsed also in the controversial Copenhagen Accord coming out of COP15 in 2009. Um, it was in 2010 at the negotiations in Cancun that a more um, that the initial framework for RED was agreed upon, um, which then has been elaborated on in subsequent um, agreements. And it's also in the Cancun agreements that some very important safeguards were included in the legal framework for RED that references um, the rights of Indigenous peoples um, living in forested areas. Um, and then, but the key sort of framework for RED was um, agreed upon in 2013 called the Warsaw Framework for RED Plus. And this basically puts in place an accounting framework for the monitoring, reporting and verification or what they call results-based actions um, that allow for um, understanding the carbon sequestration sequestered due to policy approaches to reduce deforestation and forest degradation to become legible in terms of sort of one tonne of CO2 equivalent and thus to become exchangeable and fungible, fungible and tradable in international carbon markets. Um, it's red was endorsed in the Paris Agreement. Parties were encouraged to take action to implement and support these sort of um, activities. But post-Paris, um, what are the controversial ongoing questions and the development of what was called the Paris Rulebook in the subsequent Conference of the Parties was, um, was these negotiations on what are rules for um, international carbon trading under the Paris Agreement and what is the role of um, forests and any sort of credits arising from carbon sequestration through avoided deforestation or other land use activities in those. And even though this um, um, rule book has now been concluded at the most recent um, conference of the parties in Glasgow um, in 2021, there's still a fair bit of uncertainty about how precisely how forests um, fit um, within that and um, what that what that looks like. Thank you. Can you tell us how does forest function play a role in importance to read? Sure. So one of the problems I think with RED is that RED imagines forests simply as a carbon sink. And this is an incredibly reductive view of forests. Forests are much more, much more than simply a carbon sink. And this is precisely what's been one of the things that's been problematic about RED and how it's been, how it's developed. 
Um, so indeed, red defines forest simply as a number of trees of a particular size in a particular area. And this is a definition that does not really differentiate between forests and plantations. And so you've seen in some cases proposals that sort of seek to, um, you know, get credits for, you know, through red for um, the development of new plantations. Um, whereas we know that forests are much more than just simply a certain number of trees in a particular area. They're massive stores of biodiversity. Um, they also play a critically important role in, you know, filtering of clean water, for example, and also they're home, um, as I said, to um, lots of people, 1.6 billion people around the world um, either live in forests or depend on them to some degree for their livelihoods, about 300 million of whom are Indigenous and so I think what I want to stress too is that forests are people's homes and that people depend on these um, resources and access to these spaces and that forests also have massive cultural significance for many communities. They're a site of um, stories, of law, of ceremony, um, of cultural traditions as well. So this view that treats forests simply as um, a carbon sink is incredibly, incredibly reductive. Um, one of the assumptions that I've read is, again, too, that carbon that's stored in forest areas is completely exchangeable and substitutable and equivalent to um, any other carbon. Whereas if you look at the science of it, carbon, for example, that's stored in fossil fuel reserves that is below ground has been there for millions of years and will continue to stay there underground unless we dig up those fossil fuel reserves um, such as coal, oil or gas. Whereas the carbon that's stored in forests or in other land use, I mean other land, is in a constant cyclical interchange with the atmosphere. Forests are constantly um, absorbing carbon dioxide, storing carbon dioxide, but then also releasing carbon dioxide as plants um, die, for example. Um, if there's fires in a forest, you know, you have massive amounts of carbon then being released. This is not a permanent storage, but there's a constant cyclical interchange. And that's why one of the key concerns around the environmental integrity of schemes such as RED has been this idea of permanence. How do you ensure that the carbon that's stored in forests is stored there permanently, particularly given you know, the threats that forests are under um, from fires, for example, as we're seeing catastrophic fires in numerous places um, in Australia, where I'm from, we saw catastrophic fires um, all down the east coast in 2000, the summer of 2019, for example. And um, we're also seeing now with the increased pressures that forests are under from climate change, as well as others, that forests are becoming a net source rather than net carbon source rather than a net carbon sink in some places, there's also, you know, pests as well as illegal logging, um, which continues to be a problem um, in many parts of the world. So this problem of permanence. There's also a concern around additionality. So how do we know if we um, store carbon, um, if we prevent deforestation, that what happens is additional to what would have happened otherwise. And again, this relies on setting a particular baseline and clearly, if those baselines about what is projected would have happened um, without these policy approaches in place, overinflates or underinflates um, the context, you can easily create um, false credits that are effectively just um, hot air. Another issue um, that's really been 
A key problem has been this sort of concern around leakage. Again, two of you put in place some policy incentives that might protect forests in one area, for example, in Indonesia, where I did um, some field work during my PhD studies. Um, unless we address the actual drivers of deforestation and the global drivers um, of deforestation that are creating demand for um, timber, for um, pulp, for um, palm oil, for um, um, meats, et cetera, um, the things that are causing deforestation, then um, we're likely to just see that deforestation move from one place to another place in the world. So that's the concern around leakage. So all these problems um, arise, you know, from not recognising that, you know, question of deforestation really um, engage a broader global political economy. And it's this broader global political economy of what's driving deforestation that really needs to be tackled and addressed rather than a lot of these, um, the red approach, which really focuses much more only on the site of the actual forests, um, rather than putting it into that broader global context. Thank you. Can you describe the public and private international law in Red Plus? You talked about that in your book. Sure. So um, the history that I told you before of Red was sort of really tracing developments under the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change and the various conference of the parties meetings that happen every year, the decisions that come out of that. And that's sort of the general history that's often told about RED. However, one of the things that I really emphasise in my book is that this international climate law framework isn't the only legal framework that structures RED. Rather, I argue that in order to properly understand how RED operates and the forms of global authority it actualises, it's necessary to also look at um, the private law that structures these forms of forest carbon sequestration. So I look at how RED is actually based on forms of transnational contracting that represent promises of future orientated action to ensure additional carbon sequestration at specific location. And I argue that we need to pay attention to the terms of these contracts and the conditions under which these sort of contracts are produced, agreed to etc. And I look to how um, certain template contracts of these what are called emission reduction purchase agreements were developed by the World Bank and its carbon um, finance section and especially what was called the um, what's called the forest carbon partnership facility that this is that they've created various template contracts that then are taken up by other actors and that the terms and conditions of these are key to the forms of authority that are being articulated and enabled by um, these red schemes. And there, I think it's really important to recognise that these sort of more, you know, what I call private law actions that are sort of happening um, away from, you know, the focus which is often on these international negotiations are often making decisions that um, predetermine in some ways what can happen with the international legal framework. Um, that the World Bank was developing template emission reduction um, purchase agreements um, before the rules about how carbon markets under Kyoto um, would operate um, were developed in the international framework. So these are so that understanding, I guess, how things operate in practice, we really need to be paying attention to both these um, private and these public um, public rules to get a real sense of the way in which new forms of global authority 
are being articulated through projects such as RED. And what role does the property law play in regards to RED Plus? Sure, so property plays a huge role and there's a couple of different property rights at play in RED. So first, there's the creation of new forms of property rights in carbon that we see in carbon markets. And these are a really strange type of property rights because they're intangible and they're structured by law. They really only, these new property rights um, in emission reductions really only come into effect because of the legal imposition of limitations on greenhouse gas emissions and legal rules that create this new commodity. And one of the things that I look at in the book is, you know, how is the, what is the initial distribution of these new rights in um, emission reductions? And I argue that the process that was developed under the Kyoto framework um, from 2007 was a grandfathering. Um, which is basically allocating these rights on the basis of histories of pollution, which worked the advantage of those countries in the global north who are historical polluters. So those who have done the most to cause the problem were in some ways award, um, rewarded um, through this process of grandfathering. So I look at sort of the perversities and the problems of that um, from a sort of ethical point of view. Secondly, there's a whole bunch of new property rights that are needed to sort of create this um, economy in forest carbon sequestration, um, new rights in um, rights to manage the um, in carbon rights for forests, for example, that's rights to sort of manage what's called the carbon sequestration potential of the land. And there's a lot of questions around this because the international framework is silent on this and has really left it to individual countries to work out how they're going to put this in place. Should this be a separate right? If so, who should these rights be granted to? Should it be defined in legislation or common law, for example? Um, but, and then there's a the question of the underlying rights to the actual land that the forest is on. And again, this has been part of the reasons why RED has been so controversial because, um, a lot of forest land around the world is owned by governments rather than the people who live in it and depend on those forests. And there's histories, long histories of dispossession, exclusion and marginalisation of these forest um, communities. And that's why there's been such strong advocacy um, of many Indigenous groups in particular calling for rights before RED. And it's accepted now in all sort of rights-based approaches to RED implementation that tenure reform is critical for the effectiveness, for the equity of RED projects. But one thing I look at is if we simply grant tenure rights to communities um, as part of a RED project, I say we need to really look at what is the nature of these rights that are then being granted to communities? Because if you're granting um, a certain titling to communities in a context at which the question about what that land can be used for and how it can be used have already been determined by these transnational carbon contracts, by the fact that someone else already owns the carbon credits that could arise from these sort of projects, you're giving people a very incredibly constrained right. And as I actually argue, what they get then is more a form is more responsibilities rather than rights, obligations to behave in certain ways, to be accountable, um, rather than actually what's key to property is that sort of right to control 
um, manage and to make those sort of decisions, which is also, again, what's part inherent to, you know, rights of self-determination for Indigenous people, that they can decide how they um, wish to use their land and resources. So I look at, you know, how these three different levels of property rights, um, rights in carbon at the international level, these rights in carbon sequestration potential at the national level, and the sort of tenure rights at that local level, um, that they really operate in ways that, again, empower international actors and further marginalise the local actors um, and these sort of the local communities that live in and around forested areas. And again, that's why I sort of say this focus, paying attention to these sort of private law aspects, paying attention to the details about what types of rights are being granted, what um, powers are part of these rights is really crucial to understanding um, how RED articulates new forms of global authority um, and actualizes those new forms of global authority over land and resources in the global South. What message would you like to leave the audience with from your book? Sure. So the key argument that the book makes is that um, RED needs to be analysed not just as a problematic false solution to climate change, but also as an ambitious project that's reorganising how forested land in the global south becomes an object for international and transnational regulation. The analysis in the book is therefore not focused on the various limitations of RED, even though I hope I've given your listeners a sense of what these problems are, um, but rather draws attention to the reductive effect of this type of international climate policy and shows how RED um, operates to reorganise social relations and to establish new forms of global authority over forests in the global south in ways that benefit some interests, the interests of some actors, while further marginalising others. And it demonstrates through how the creation of new legal relations, including new property rights, as we discussed, and new contractual obligations, as we discussed, these new forms of transnational authority over forested areas in the global south are being constituted. A key focus of the book is on this social dimension of red, which is, as I've said, again, these key concerns for the rights of the 1.6 billion people who live in and around forested areas, 200 million of whom identify as Indigenous. I think part of the unique contribution that the book makes is showing how even the main strategies that are being promoted to protect forest peoples from potential adverse impacts from RED, namely tenure reform, benefit sharing and free prior informed consent, shouldn't be primarily understood as ameliorative, but these strategies actually further consolidate these new forms of global authority by working to transform forest people into ecosystem service providers in this new green economy. So I guess in sort of the key underlying concerns that are animating this book, namely, is that there's a lot of responsibilities and obligations that are entailed in a just cohabitation of a shared planet. And that, you know, in addressing climate change, we need to, you know, these concerns that I started with, that we need to be addressing the inequalities that are such a key part of the climate crisis in our legal responses to the problem. And, you know, rejecting these sort of responses that further um, further replicate these um, or further reproduce these inequalities. And so I guess I want to leave um, the audience the message that there are other ways in which the problem of climate change and deforestation could be approached. And I draw on statements of um, communities living in and around forested areas 
we're resisting red to demonstrate what some of these possible alternatives is. And thus, although the unfolding ecological crisis invariably will shape our personal and collective future lives, I try and stress that the contours of possible futures are not yet fixed and remain contested, even as I trace these emergent relations of law, power and authority in one dominant but not inevitable future trajectory. Now, this green economy and the associated agendas to make nature legible in economic terms and governable through market mechanisms. And I very much hope that instead that we can have forms of a radical reimagining of law and regulation um, to sort of think about other ways in which we can um, respond to the really acute challenges posed by the climate crisis in more ethical, um, more just and more reparative ways. We've taken up a lot of your time. What is your next project that you will be working on? Sure, I've got two um, future projects. The first is the book project, which follows on from this in lots of ways. It's provisionally called Accounting for Carbon. And so the title is a bit of a play on the fact that accounting can refer both to the process of qualifying, um, counting and measuring, but it also refers to obligations that are owed to another. To call someone to account is to require them to explain a mistake or poor performance and accountability is a fact or condition of being accountable or responsible. So the book project seeks to explore how different seemingly technical decisions about how climate objectives are framed, the methodologies adopted for measuring and monitoring greenhouse gas emissions, and the way climate risks are conceptualised have implications for how responsibility for the, um, the harms caused by climate change are configured and which actors are held responsible for taking certain types of mitigation or adaptation actions. Um, and this book sort of seeks to address these questions through three different themes, so targets, inventories and risks. Um, the examination of targets explores the political nature, the way in which climate objectives or targets are expressed and the way in which targets are formulated and how these can lead to very different mitigation approaches and emission reduction trajectories. The examination of inventories explores the different approaches used for exploring accountability frameworks for greenhouse gas emissions and how these technical decisions differentially locate responsibility for reduction and liability for harm. And finally, the examination of risks um, talk about sort of what subjects are being protected by dominant um, climate risk disclosure frameworks. And again, who, the risks to whom are being excluded from this consideration. The second longer term project is looking at international law and natural resources. And this project aims to develop a comprehensive, holistic and historically informed analysis of the relationship between international law and natural resources. Um, and one of the things I'm really interested in is sort of providing a critical historical account of how international law has shaped and been shaped by natural resource controversies and concerns. And I think this sort of historical account can illuminate what led to the development of contemporary forms of international authority over natural resources, the practices and processes by which they were actualized, and underlying dynamics that drive or cause such developments. And I think here I'm particularly, again, concerned about how um, imperialism and other historical leg legacies continue to shape the doctrines, principles and practices of international law. And so while there's been a real turn to history and in international legal scholarship in recent decades, there's been no comprehensive account in international law's relationship to natural resources that spans the colonial and post-colonial periods. And so this is something that I'd hope to contribute um, through this project. Those projects sound great. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you very much for having me.